Well, it's without a doubt the most controversial meal in all of history. It's a meal that's resulted in splits within families, nations, and denominations. It's been the cause of even wars at various points in in history. It's a meal invested with deep ritual and meaning. No, I'm not talking about uh, Thanksgiving this Thursday, though. Thanksgiving seems to become more and more controversial each year as people try to grapple with history and what it all means. And I get some Thanksgiving dinners do indeed turn into sort of a family feud when somebody's like, hey, so what do you think about politics And then for the next three hours? Or let's watch the football game. Like, that could be pretty harmless, right? And then the Auburn fans and the Alabama fans or other sides of the I guess that's Friday. Um, no, I'm not talking about Thursday's annual celebration. Though I understand that sometimes it can be a time, a cause for family fights and football feuds. No, I'm talking about a meal that has been known by various names throughout history. Sometimes it's known as communion. Other times that meal is known as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, or in some traditions, a name that's actually rooted in Scripture, the Eucharist. It's ironic that the the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper as it's presented here, where Jesus inaugurates this, uh, this this new ritual, this new rite, this new meal for his people, it's a meal that's meant to display the unity of God's people so often has been the basis for division. Uh, and sometimes for good reason. You can sort of trace out church history. There have been groups who have tried to make it say much, much more than what Scripture says and even go far, so far beyond Scripture that Scripture's contradicted. Let me just put this out there. The, the elements of communion do not literally become the body and blood of Jesus. We are not re-sacrificing Jesus when we celebrate communion, the text says it's a commemoration, it's a memorial. That's a, that's a legitimate issue over which the believers should, should divide and stick with Scripture. But literally, there have been wars that have been fought over understanding. You can look at the 30 years war in Europe in the 1600s. Protestants, Catholics, major war, millions of people dead. Ironic, isn't it? But it's amazing. This meal is designed to display unity. It's often been the topic of fraught debate. So much so that some churches are just like, you know, we're going to just celebrate it as infrequently as possible. We don't want to sort of veer off into error, so we will protect the, the meaning of communion by just not doing it. I've been part of Baptist churches that have sort of gotten to that point where it's well, once a year just to be, be extra, extra careful. But I want to ask and answer this question. What does the Lord's Supper mean? Tonight we'll be getting back together again to, celebrating, to celebrate communion. I would have tried to do it this morning, but we've got a baptism today, and I'm like, it's going to be hard to be in the baptistry, and we want to get out of here. And I think it's going to be great to take an entire service tonight just to reflect on what Jesus has done. But what does it mean? Why does it matter? Why is it important? Just think about how odd uh, the Lord's Supper is. We live in this world where everything is super fast-paced. Everybody's got screens and videos and incredible spectacles and CGI and Photoshop. Uh, We are assaulted all the time with these incredible spectacles, these incredible displays and entertainment. And then God has given us in his word really two visual dramatizations of the gospel. And they're not what we would expect. He doesn't say, hey, put on a passion play every year and just give us this big spectacle. No, he says, here's the two pictures I've given my people to, to, to picture the gospel. One of them we'll see this morning is baptism. Really ordinary thing. Water, somebody goes under the water, that can come up out of the water, picturing and declaring the fact that they have put their faith in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper, where we take some matzah and we break it into pieces and we, we all share of sort of one piece of bread, a cup of juice that pictures the, the blood of Jesus. 
And Jesus himself says, this be doing in remembrance of me. Paul says, do this until the Lord comes. This perpetual reminder. Just think about how ordinary and odd this is. Now, maybe it doesn't seem odd to you if you grew up in church and celebrating communion. So this is what we do. But if you were an outsider looking in, Christians get together and they eat a cracker and drink a little thing of juice. Like, what's with that? Ancient Rome, Christians were accused of cannibalism. People are like, body, blood, that's weird. We don't want to do that. Been misunderstood. And yet into this world in which we live, there's a lot of people asking today, do we need to change the way we do church for, for, for a new millennium? Do we need to change the way we, we think about these things because of COVID and going online? I would submit to you the things that make a church a church are the things that God ordained in his word and that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years and celebrating communion is one of them. It cuts across the grain of culture. It refuses to satisfy our demand for the big spectacular spectacle. And it calls us to something really ordinary. God's ordained this simple, symbolic meal of bread and juice to convey eternal glories. Taking the ordinary and being like, I'm going to convey the eternal through that. It connects us with ancient realities going all the way back to Passover. So I would suggest to you today that celebrating communion regularly as Christians, it does not make you a Christian, but as Christians, celebrating this family meal, kind of like you're going to get together with the family on Thursday for Thanksgiving, getting together with the family to do this is one of the means of grace that God has ordained to make us more like Jesus. It's not just something we do out of just raw obedience to Scripture. It's something that God has called us to that is meaningful and it is important. Context here, we're coming up to the cross. We've been marching through the, the gospel of Luke on and off over the last year. We're going to do one more week in Luke and then sort of hit pause for, for Christmas, for Advent, and go into Ephesians in the new year. We will come back around to the end of Luke at a, at a later date. We're coming right up to the night of Jesus' betrayal. And we saw last week that Jesus is orchestrating all of the events so he can celebrate this Passover with his disciples and ordain this thing that we call the Lord's Supper. So what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? We're going to be doing this tonight. I'm going to present this this morning so we have the, the afternoon to soak it all in and then come back together tonight for a really meaningful time together as God's people. Well, let me give you some statements that will fill out what this means, what its significance is, because I think we as Baptists are like, okay, it's a memorial, and then we kind of move on. But there's so much more that the Scripture tells us about this that's here in our text, the, the meaning of what the Last Supper and therefore communion is about. First off, the, the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper as we see it here, is a Passover fulfillment. Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. It was this annual commemoration for the people of Israel to look back on how God delivered them from Egypt. The tenth plague, the, the, the death angel came along, all the firstborn of Egypt died. God said, here's how you're going to be spared. You're going to slaughter a lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost of your house, and that lamb, so to speak, will take the place of your firstborn. Firstborn. It's a substitute for you. And Jesus is coming along as the final Passover sacrifice. Just as the Passover looked backward to the Exodus, the Last Supper is saying, that is now fulfilled, and we're looking now to the cross. The, the focal point is no longer what God did back then in, in the book of Exodus, but it is now what God has done in history through the person of Jesus. So here he comes as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, giving this Passover a brand new meaning, fulfilling it. It's a perfect place for Jesus to inaugurate a new covenant, point to the cross, and start something new. Something that I am fascinated by 
and maybe this just, just says something about the fact that I like to eat, uh, but it's how important a place food has in the storyline of the Bible. We think of food as just kind of a, you know, we eat it so we can live, and, you know, you, you eat to live, you don't live to eat, and those sort of things. But remember in the Garden of Eden, God gave mankind one command. What was it? Well, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes along, and he basically says to Eve, take, eat, disobey God. Go along to Israel. One of the things that marked them off as God's people from the nations around them were those dietary laws. You're like, well, what's, what's going on with that? Those are sort of signs to the nations. We're like, we're different. We're God's people. We don't eat what everyone else eats. Jesus comes along in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, and he declares all foods clean. And that will be sort of carried out in the, in the book of Acts to where God's people is no longer about an ethnic group, but it's about all nations and those boundaries between Israel and the nations no longer are there. Jesus has torn it down. goes to all the nations. But you've got Satan saying, take, eat in the garden. And then you have Jesus here saying, take, eat. And he's not really just saying, well, eat this bread and that'll be good. But he's saying, receive me by faith and that is how you'll be changed. And then you get to the end of the story of the Bible. Where does the story of the Bible end? In a feast in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you could trace the whole storyline of what God is doing in terms of food. It's pretty cool. And I don't know if anybody's ever done that study, but I thought... If I ever want to write a book, that might, might be the book that I want to write and make sure I eat lots of food along the way as we do this. But here's my point. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's longing. The final Passover, all the lambs that are slaughtered, pointing to his death on the cross. The priests who offer them him coming, saying, I'm the great high priest. I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. I'm the true vine. I'm the fulfillment of all that Israel was meant to be. So Passover has been fulfilled in Jesus. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not doing Passover. We're celebrating the fulfillment of Passover through the death of Jesus. You know, there's not much in our world today that connects so profoundly to the past like that. We sort of modern people, we number one, we don't really know history super well. Like it's kind of scary how poorly people know, know history. And we don't really have any sense of like centuries of people before us. But then we get together as Christians and we do this weird thing that no one else in the world does that links back to a Passover celebration 2,000 years ago, which itself reaches back to the first Passover 3,500 years ago. Gives us this sense, this connection in history. In today's world, especially in the evangelical church, we tend to value the novel over the ancient, the creative over the traditional for its own sake. But celebrating communion is one of the God-given links we have to the past to remind us what Jesus has done. It's countercultural. So that's the first, the first meaning, if, we will, if you will, of communion, of the Lord's Supper, of the Last Supper. It's Passover fulfillment. Jesus has paid the price to take away the sins of the world. Now, to partake of the meal, that needs to be true in your life. There's a a tremendous reality of sin in every one of our hearts. We can't atone for that sin. We can't get rid of it ourselves. It's just just baked into the, into the, into the, the, the fabric of our hearts and in who we are, and we live in rebellion against God. And the only way that our sins can be taken away is through the death of Jesus on the cross. The only way for the wrath of God to pass over us and not come crashing down upon us is for a substitute to take that. Just like the lamb took the place of the firstborn in ancient Israel, Jesus takes the place of sinners in his death on the cross. And whoever repents, whoever believes and receives him by faith, 
God's wrath passes over and lands on Jesus and not us. But let me give you a second meaning of communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a fellowship feast. Did you notice in verse 14 and verse 15 the little phrase with, the little word with? So he sat down with the 12 apostles with them. And he says, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you. This is not just Jesus checking off a box, Bill, we're going to do Passover. But it's about him enjoying fellowship with his apostles before he goes to the cross. And we've noted in, the, in pastor messages, this is not like the Leonardo da Vinci painting where everybody's sitting at a table, like not looking at each other. It's kind of weird, like here we are on a little line. That's not how they would have done it. This would have been a low table, and you would have laid on these couches right up next to the table. It was very, very intimate. You're lying on your side. The other person next to you is like right up against you. That's what it means when uh, it says John was leaning up against Jesus. Like it is physically close. It is intimate. And in the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone means entering into a relationship. And this is stunning. Jesus says, with desire have I desired. Okay, that's, I, I like the fact that that's rendered so clearly there. Desired with desire is to say that I've really, really desired this, right? This has been something I've been looking forward to. And think about it. These disciples, like, they don't understand what's going on. They, in a few hours, are going to, like, run off into the, into the shrubbery. Like, they're going to just abandon Jesus. These guys are, he isn't desiring fellowship with them because they are just awesome and have it all together. No, this desire is rooted in the heart of Jesus for his people. What a stunning thought that the creator of the universe, that our Savior, desires fellowship and communion and relationship with the likes of you and me. Now, if there's any thought in your mind like, well, of course he would, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The, the primary condition for entering this relationship is recognizing, I totally don't deserve this, and yet he's seeking this out, and he's coming after me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay, that's not about, like, inviting Jesus into your heart. That's about Jesus seeking fellowship with his people. I'll come in and enjoy fellowship with you. So, saint, find comfort and companionship in this one. He beckons us to come to fellowship with him. I'm not just talking about communion. I'm talking about all the time. All the time. Maybe it's time to sort of turn the music off, shut down the TV, take out the earbuds, and get alone with your creator. Just take the noise out, the distractions away, and focus on him and enjoy him. And go away and be with him. But listen, this desire he has for a fellowship with his people, this fellowship feast. Did you notice in verse 15? It's a desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There is a connection between these two things. The great blessing of fellowship with God through Christ came at the cost of Jesus' suffering and dying in our place. There's no gift that God gives us that he just gives us to like, oh, this is just free. Every good gift that we enjoy is made possible and is purchased by Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. She say, even a lost person who does not know Jesus can enjoy the gifts of creation and family. Even those gifts were made possible by Jesus dying on the cross. Every good thing through Jesus. Romans 8.32 brings that out. So Jesus died for us to enjoy this fellowship with him. Think about like you go to a restaurant and you pay for your meal. 
You're like, hey, 15 bucks for a hamburger, and you're like, man, inflation's really kind of hitting this hard. Hey, the cost for our seat at the table was infinite. The cost for our place at the banquet was immense. His suffering on the cross. Now, it's worth noting, if he suffered, we as his followers, we're also going to suffer as well. When you go through suffering, which you will, don't be surprised by it. Instead, cling to the one who is called the man of sorrows, the one who is acquainted with grief, the one who walked through the darkest night of Gethsemane. He says, come and walk through that with me. So what does this have to do with us celebrating communion? Because we're like, hey, Jesus is not going to be physically here. We, we, we have a relationship with him through faith and his spiritual presence. Think about this. When we enter into a relationship with God vertically through faith in Jesus, we also enter into a relationship with each other. right? When we call God Father, that means we can call each other brothers and sisters. We're made family. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul leans into this idea just a little bit. First Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, he's contrasting communion with sort of the feasts that the Corinthians would go to at the idol temples. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the answer, yes, it is. Okay, the cup represents fellowship with Jesus. The bread which we break when we celebrate communion, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Okay, verse 17 is a really, really profound verse, if you think about it. We're all a bunch of individuals. And church is not just a bunch of individuals who happen to be in the same room together. Individuals who have been made one through Jesus. And what Paul is saying is through the broken body of Jesus, we have been made one. We have been made brothers and sisters. And this is incredible. It doesn't matter your ethnic background, your, 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 your economic status. You're made one. And so there could be a believer on the other side of the world. This past week I got to hear the testimony of a Christian from Afghanistan been sort of rescued after the fall of, of Kabul last year and those sort of things. And he barely speaks English. He now lives in the United States as a refugee. I have more in common with him than someone who shares every other so-called identity marker with me. I have more in common with a guy who speaks another language, another culture, eats different food, has a different sort of political allegiance and then different nationality. I have more in common with him because we're believers in Jesus than I would with someone who looks just like me, who votes just like me, who shares the same culture with me. And that's what Paul's saying. We're made one through that. Now, on a practical level, what makes a... What may, what's the, the, the dividing line between a bunch of Christians just hanging out together and a local church? This verse, 1 Corinthians ten seventeen, says in part, it's the, it's the fact that we all take communion together. That's why... It's important for us when we come together to the table tonight that we don't just think of it as personal devotions on steroids. You know, that's sort of how I used to think of communion is like, okay, I got my private time, you know, my quiet time with Jesus, and I pray. And then communion is sort of just like ramping that up, right? Sort of giving an energy drink to my devotions. And it's about just me and Jesus. Listen, there should be vertical communion with you and Jesus. But this is also about the fact that we are all one body. That's why we celebrate communion as a church, because Jesus came to redeem a people. So here's what I'm saying. It is a fellowship feast. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, you know, examine your hearts. Yeah, he's thinking about sin between me and God, but he's really thinking primarily in the context of things that divide me 
from other Christians. So I want you to think about this this afternoon before we come to the table tonight. Is there a brother or sister in Christ with whom you have division, with whom there is unresolved conflict? Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you come to the altar to offer your gift and you there remember your brother has ought against thee, there leave thy gift, first be reconciled to your brother. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus tells us to celebrate communion on a regular basis. Because here's the reality. We are going to offend and we're going to wrong each other. And we get this weekly or monthly or quarterly, depending on how often we do this, sort of checkpoint to examine our heart and our relationships with other believers. It is a fellowship feast. It is a family dinner. So think about Thanksgiving this Thursday. Family comes together. We enjoy these, this, this time together. That, that is, those are the terms we should think of the Lord's Supper in. We live in this hyper-connective yet hyper-isolated world. Like we're more connected than ever before and more lonely than ever before. And we've got this world where people are searching for meaning and place and belonging. And guess what? God's ordained a place for that to exist, and it's called the Church of Jesus Christ. That's meant to be a place where the outcast fits in, where the familyless person has a family, where we celebrate the fact that we are one in Christ. But here's a third reality of the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, it is a kingdom appetizer. Kingdom appetizer. So verses 16 to 18 this maybe strike, struck you as odd as we were reading this because the other Gospels just tells us that Jesus took bread and then he took the cup. But here in Luke, we have Jesus taking a cup and then taking bread and then taking the cup again. And you're like, did Luke like, accidentally say the same thing twice? Like, what's going on here with this? In the Passover meal at that time, there would have been four cups of wine they drank in the course of the meal. Most of the Gospels just tell us about one of them. Luke tells us about two of them. There was a cup that they drank before the meal as sort of a, this is getting things started, and we all share this, this, this cup together. There was another cup that was drunk during the meal, a third after, and then possibly a fourth cup, the cup of celebration, looking forward to sort of the, the renovation of all things. So Luke is going to mention two of these cups of wine, and the others only mention one. That's why, because there was more than one cup in the Passover meal. So verse 16, he says, I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks, saying, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. What Jesus is saying is, this is the last Passover meal that I'm going to eat with my people until the kingdom is fully established on this world, in this world. This is, this is an appetizer, a looking forward to the kingdom. So Paul puts it this way. You do show the Lord's death when we celebrate communion. We're looking back to the cross. He says, until he comes. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are looking both ways. You're crossing the road. You're looking that way. You're looking that way. We're looking back to the cross, and we're also looking forward to the kingdom. It's incredible, isn't it, that we have this intersection of time and eternity whenever we come to the table. So much more than just a ritual. Now, in verse uh, 17, Jesus says, take the cup, divide it among yourselves. Now, that might have meant they all took the cup and passed it around and drank out of the same cup. Could have meant that they poured out of the same one into different cups. doesn't really matter, but the point being, they're all sharing this together. When we experience unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a foretaste of heaven. 
really is. It's a foretaste of heaven. We get this little invasion of eternity into time when we as believers enjoy this together. Because what's heaven going to be? All of God's people from all of time enjoying perfect harmony with God and with each other from every kindred, nation, tribe, tongue, background. When God's people gather together and enjoy that kind of unity, it's a little, sort of like a little appetizer from the kitchen of heaven. When we sing like we sang this morning and just kind of you know, bust the windows off the church with the singing, you know what we're going to be doing for all eternity? Worshiping Jesus and making much of him and enjoying it for all eternity. Little foretaste in our worship and our unity of what heaven will be. By the way, you can read John 17, a prayer that Jesus prayed this same night, praying for the unity of his people. But the thing I want to sort of zero in here is verse 16 and 18. Both mention, he says, okay, this is the last one, until the kingdom of God become. The kingdom is bound up in the person of Jesus. So we can hear Jesus say, repent for the kingdom is here. Because the king is literally standing like in their presence. In the first coming, Jesus sort of inaugurates the kingdom. And then in his second coming, he's going to fully establish and fulfill the kingdom. So that's why sometimes the Bible talks about the kingdom is now, and other times it says, like, kingdom come, is because the first coming of Jesus inaugurates, the second coming fulfills it. And the kingdom of God is pictured like a great banquet. So Isaiah 25 is like, it's this great feast that everybody enjoys. That's what heaven is like. Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, calls it the marriage supper, the marriage banquet of the Lamb, like the biggest feast. Jesus here compares it to a Passover. Like, I don't know if there's, like, literal food involved with that, but the image conveys joy and fellowship and excitement and celebration. Jews to this day, when they celebrate Passover, they'll say, next year in Jerusalem. Right? That's what the, the sort of the standard in the Old Testament was celebrated where God says this. When we gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper, and when we gather every Sunday, frankly, to worship, our state, our state, the longing of our heart should be this, next year in the new Jerusalem. Looking forward to what God has in the future. I think this is really, really important for us. Because if you're like me, it's so easy to be absolutely focused with what is right in front of you. Right? Thinking about what you've got to do tomorrow. Thinking about, like, oh, man, I've got to fix the freezer. Or I've got to you know, go buy food for Thanksgiving on Thursday. And I've got to coordinate these people coming into town and all the moving. We can be so consumed with the present, we can lose sight of God's great overarching plan for history. It's an important reminder for us to say, until the kingdom come, it reminds us the kingdom's not going to happen now. We're not, we're not going to bring it in. Whether you're talking about the prosperity gospel or the political gospel, both of them are saying, hey, you can have the kingdom now, right? If you can just sort of health and wealth, or if we do this thing politically, we can sort of make this world utopia and make it awesome. Jesus says, no, in the world you'll have tribulation. We look for a kingdom that's still to come. We as God's people should be the most hopeful people on the planet. The most hopeful people on the planet, yet so, so often we're the most pessimistic, cynical see the evil and behind every rock kind of people. And, and our hope is not found in just sort of this vague, like, oh, it's just going to be better, things will be fine. Early Christians were able to have hope, not because they're like, oh, it'll all turn out fine. No, they're being persecuted. Because they had an, a rock-solid belief that Jesus will come back and he will establish his kingdom. And, you know, one of the reasons God gave us the Lord's table is to give us a place where we would be reminded that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. 
It calls us to lift our tired eyes off the world around us. Look away from the news and look forward to the new kingdom that is going to come. We can never long too deeply for the glory that is ours in Christ. Now, we can have a wrong view of heaven where it's just kind of an escape hatch. But I mean, really longing for what God was going to do in making a new heaven and a new earth, we can never long for that too much. We can never anticipate too eagerly the joy that will be ours when we renew the feast in the new Jerusalem in the coming kingdom. But I'll give you a fourth reality about the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial meal. So we now come to the end of the Passover meal. They would have eaten the lamb that they had roasted in fire, the bitter herbs. They would have retold the Exodus story of what God did in bringing his people up out of Egypt. For the pious Jew, the entire meal was designed to remind them of God's work in the Exodus. You can read about that in Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16. God God was basically saying to his people, I don't want you to forget what I have done. Because if you forget, then you'll go after other saviors, other gods, other deliverers. At the start of the meal, the youngest son would ask this question, why is this night different from other nights? And then the host, who would usually be the patriarch, or in this case, Jesus, would retell the Exodus story. And when it came time to break the matzah, the unleavened bread, he would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. But Jesus comes along and he breaks from that pattern. Verse 19, he doesn't say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in Egypt. He says, this is my body which is given for you. So he just totally changes it. That would have been a shock to be like, whoa, you just broke from what we always say every year. This is different. Jesus is emphasizing something totally different that he himself is given by God for his people. Of course, he's referring to what's going to happen within just a few short hours. He would go to the cross. He would die. This, by the way, is why Christmas is so important. He's got to be human so that he can die for our sins because the wages of sin is death. He's going to satisfy God's wrath. He's going to secure our atonement. He's going to purchase our freedom. Where we should have suffered eternal death, he takes our place. So notice verse 19. This is my body which is given for you in our place. Not just a, what what a great example Jesus places for us, but as our substitute bearing God's wrath. For us. Now, verse 19, we get an imperative. We get a command. He says, This do in remembrance of me. This is Jesus uh, ordaining what we call the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. This is why we are still doing it. It's not just merely because, oh, Jesus and his disciples did this. We should do the same thing. Listen, Jesus and his disciples did a lot of things that we don't copy. We don't have the ability to do all, raise the dead and do all the things they did. It's not just bare example, but it's direct command. This be doing, present imperative, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. At the absolute heart of our faith is not a rule book. At the heart of our faith is not a list of do's and don'ts that being a Christian means boom, do these things and don't do these things. At the heart of our faith is not just, hey, Christians get together on Sunday. Though Christians do get together on Sundays. The heart of our faith is a person. Right? And a person who's not actually physically present, a person we can't actually see, a person that would be really, really easy to forget is the person of Jesus. And lest we forget, he says, I want you on a regular basis to remember me and look forward to my return. This 
be doing. Why does he do this? Why did God have to tell ancient Israel, hey, do Passover every year and remind yourself of what I've done? Why does he say celebrate the Lord's Supper routinely? Which, by the way, the early church did this every time they gathered. Why? Uh, because we are really prone to forget. Right? We're prone to forget. Our hearts and our minds easily drift to other things. It's easy for our minds to be filled and to be numbed even with just hour after hour after hour of mind-numbing entertainment. It's easy for our minds to be gripped by the concerns of life, the next doctor's appointment, the kid's project at school that's due tomorrow, the end-of-the-year deadline at work, the car payment and the mortgage. Those are realities of this life, but they're so easy, they so easily pull us away from thinking of and meditating on and remembering Christ. The regular celebration and obedience to this command of communion reorients our affections. So easy to start falling in love, not the, to love the world, and this is no Christ is the one that we love supremely. It renews our focus. What does it do? It reminds us of the horror of sin. Why does Jesus have to die the horrible death that he dies? It's because sin is really that bad. Your sin is really that bad. The unkind word that you spoke to your spouse last night demanded Jesus' death on the cross to be forgiven. The sinful thought that you harbored on Tuesday morning required the suffering of Jesus on the cross to be forgiven. The, the deceptive word that you, you uttered required the death of Jesus to be forgiven. Sin is really that bad in the eyes of a holy God. It's not that God's like, everything sort of below this line is just sort of, you can get that for free, just big stuff. No, no, no. All sin is an affront to a holy God and requires the death of Jesus. We really easily forget that, right? We're like, oh, these sins are really bad. Like, those are the ones, but my, my sins aren't that bad. Like, other people's sins, yeah, they're bad, but my sins, not that bad. Coming to the table and reminding what, being reminded of what Jesus did reminds us of the horror of sin. It reminds us of the cost of our redemption. And it reminds us of the fact that, okay, if my forgiveness is based on what Jesus did, then in no way is it based on what I do for myself. In no way is it based on my performance. You see, you can live the Christian life thinking, I've got to perform and make God happy and earn his favor and earn his smile. And I've got to come to church and do, serve, serve, serve to try to just please God and sort of meet this. Where what, what the, 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 table, the, the table says to us, it is finished. And we are accepted in God's sight. And we serve not so that we can be accepted, but because we are accepted in his sight. So Jesus says, remember, don't forget. And that's primarily what the Lord's table is about, is reminding our hearts and our minds of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and our standing in his sight. Now, just to make a note when he says, this is my body, Jesus is physically standing in the room, so he cannot mean that like this bread is physically actually his body. Like that's totally absurd. Any more than when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he doesn't mean that like, I'm literally a grapevine. Like, okay, this is a metaphor. Uh, this pictures, this symbolizes my body. This pictures, this symbolizes my blood. But wow, what, 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 a, what an amazing reality, a memorial meal. Now, let me give you a final picture, final, a final statement of meaning. The Lord's Supper is a covenant celebration. So verse 20, likewise, also... The cup after supper. So this is to distinguish it from the one before supper, different, different cup of wine. 
This cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The blood is being shed for you, blood being a picture of his life. He's like, I'm going to go lay down my life for y'all, for the sins of the world. At the end of the meal, normally the host would have said, may the all-merciful one make us worthy of the days of the Messiah and of the life of the world to come. But Jesus stands up. He literally is the Messiah. He literally is the Messiah. By his death, he would indeed make his people worthy of the kingdom and the life to come. And the red wine in the cup is an obvious symbol of blood, blood that points to the death that he would suffer. So communion is not just about a looking back, but it's this, this, this beginning of a new covenant. God, God has these covenants with his people throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let me just turn there and read this, because this is what Jesus is referring to. Jeremiah 31, 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, it's not like the Mosaic covenant, which my covenant they break, although I wasn't husband unto them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Here's what the new covenant is about, is you get a new heart and a new relationship with God and all sins past, present, and future forgiven completely and totally. That's what, it, that's what this covenant is about. And so Jesus says, guys, I'm establishing it right here, right now. This cup, this bread points to the cross. The cross will be the establishment of this new kind of relationship with God. It's a promise of complete forgiveness. It's the gospel. It's the good news. The shedding of Jesus' blood establishes a right relationship with God for us. And so whenever we celebrate communion, it's like we're renewing that relationship with God. No, it doesn't bring us into it. The, the way you enter that relationship is through faith alone in Christ alone. But when we come to the table, it is a renewal of the relationship with God, with each other. But I wanted to zero in on one word, that word new. The new covenant. Okay, it's different than the, the old covenant that God made with Moses, uh, which was primarily expressed in sort of outward forms. This is about a new heart. It's, a, it's promising the very thing that we are most helpless to achieve on our own. A right relationship with our creator on the basis of his grace. It promises newness. Think about what good news this is. A brand new beginning where the slate is wiped completely clean. A new standing with God that's not based on performance and not one that you have to keep by good works. It's about a new heart. It's about new affections. It's about new direction. It's about a brand new destiny. The old is gone and the new has come. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Who wouldn't want that? And maybe you are here today and you have tried over and over and over again to try to be made new yourself. You've checked out TikTok to find out the latest in spiritual advice. 
You've gone to therapy and talked to your therapist until you've run out of things to say. You've tried AA. You've dabbled in spirituality. And like none of these things can actually change my heart. Yeah, I can learn some new habits and sort of outwardly, but I can't actually change what I love in my heart. And I know I love sin, and I don't know how to break that. Here's my plea to you. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus. He promises to make all new who come to him, resting in what he has done. What you need is not a new technique. What you need is not better advice. It's not just new friends. It's a new heart. And you are incapable of doing heart surgery on yourself. Only God can give that to you. Jesus said this, you must be born again. Must be born again. If you're going to see heaven, if you're going to see the kingdom, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. You can no more create your own new birth than you were able to make your own physical birth. This is, this is something that God does by his power, by his grace, through faith. Let's come to him in faith. Now, I want to just conclude with this. Because we have that statement in 1 Corinthians 11 says, you know, we should not drink unworthily. I don't want us to read that or hear that and think, well, I need to achieve a status of worthiness. Here's what it means to be worthy is to recognize that I am unworthy and that through the blood of Jesus I have been declared and made worthy. Think about who Jesus celebrated this meal with. Judas is sitting there. He's a traitor. Judas is an imposter. Judas should not have been at that table. Yet Jesus offers grace and forgiveness to him. Judas rejects it, goes out into the night to betray Jesus. If you look at verses 24 to 30, you find out Verse 24, there's a strife among the 11, among the disciples. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? You're like, Jesus is just talking about self-sacrifice and going to the cross for them. And they're like, yeah, so which one of us is the best? They're totally missing the point. We come down to verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that thy faith fail not. So we know Peter, he's going to deny Jesus three times before the sun comes up. And then in verses 35 to 38, Jesus is like, things are about to get really bad. You need a sword. And they're like, ah, cool, we got two swords. And Jesus is like, okay, you guys missed the point there. I'm not talking literally. I'm talking metaphorically. Things are about to get bad. Conflict is about to come. So here Jesus is talking to faithless traitors. He's talking to arrogant egotists who are just squabbling about who's the best. He's talking to his frail followers like Peter who, are, who, are, who don't have it all together. And he's even talking to these ignorant saints who don't understand his metaphors that he's using. And these are the people that he invites to the table. It's all of grace, beloved. From beginning to end. By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves as the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Gratitude is rooted in the humility of knowing that I'm owed nothing. The most grateful people in the world are the people who recognize, I don't deserve this, and yet I'm going to acknowledge the one who gave it to me. Pride and entitlement will destroy gratitude. It sort of sucks the oxygen out of the room, right? If, I'm, if I think I'm sort of owed things, I'm owed things by God, I'm owed his favor, I'm owed his kindness, I'm owed this relationship and all these things, why should I be grateful? that I deserve this. I earned this. Gratitude grows up in the soil of humility. Gratitude wells up from a heart that knows its sinfulness and knows that it has been forgiven. So as we come into this Thanksgiving week, 
I didn't plan this to be the, you know, like, hey, make sure we land on this for Thanksgiving. It's just where we are in the text. May we look to the cross and see what Jesus has done for us. May we come to the table tonight to just tangibly remind our hearts of that. We'll gather again on Tuesday to, to verbally praise him for that. But what grace that Jesus indeed paid it all. Would you bow with me?